Yo, what's going on? It's your boy here, Daryl, with Buy and Build Podcast, here with Nicholas Skelf. And today we've got a really great guest. We've got Nate Ritter. And what he is, he's a SaaS entrepreneur, a tech consultant with 20 years of experience at companies like Activision Blizzard, Microsoft, Land Rover. He's also a startup founder, an investor, and a mentor for many companies. He's appeared in publications like Wall Street Journal, Wired Magazine, Fast Company, The Each Post Times, Lifehacker, and Mashable for his work with Chris Messina to create the and popularize the hashtag in 2007. I'm running under breath right now, but that just means you have a very large resume, which is amazing. Thank you for coming on, Nate. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is, this is going to be fun, I think. I can already tell. It's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> it's my radio voice when I try to pretend I'm a sportscaster. <laughs> I like it. I like it. See, I always wanted to have the name. Like, you got to have, like, the name that, like, people are going to call out from the stands. They're like, Nate Ritter or Daryl Lamb, you know, coming onto the field. Like, whatever. Like, you got to have that name. So, it works. It works both ways. So, that's great. I love the voice. The pod- you have the talk- podcast voice. <laughs> Let me pretend. Okay. Pretend we're playing soccer or hockey or something. All right. Nate, 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 Nate. Go, 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 go. <laughs> Dreams just came true right there. It's amazing. Love it. <laughs> First time I've ever done that. So, beautiful. Uh, who is Nate Ritter? So, tell us about him. Tell about his background. What kind of music listens to? What podcasts he listens to? We just want to know the personal name. So, do I have to speak in the third person, or like what, or how this work? Whatever you think. <laughs> if you think that if you speak in third person, it like enlarges your name a little bit. Go oh ahead. man, so douchey. No, I'm not doing that. No. So, okay, all right. So, you, I heard podcasts, history, music. So. Man, my music. Okay, so we'll start with music because I've heard that you've asked this question to a lot of people. So I'm gonna start with that. It's and this is a tough one for me because my interests go all over the place. It's probably better to exclude music than it is to include music for me. There are certain music genres that I just can't vibe with. Country is probably the top of the list, and mostly because I think when I say that, people get like super antagonistic about it, and I just like to you know, poke people anyway. So that's number one. I, I, I never really got into opera. That's not a thing for me. I can't do that. And and honestly, like, I think like the old school, like 80s, 90s rap, I like, but then anything after that, I'm like, eh, it just gets too hard for me. And I'm like, I just can't, it just doesn't fit with who I am. But everything else, for the most part, that I can think of off the top of my head, I'm pretty down with for the most part. So, but what I listen to mostly is like, I'm a coder. So I listen to a lot of techno and then, and it's just, you know, vibe out music. And then just, I like classical. I don't listen to it enough. I wish I did, but I don't sit down and read enough books. And I feel like all my music tastes go with a particular context. So if I'm driving, it's like, you know, the, I don't know, 80s, 90s, alternative, kind of hip hop, that kind of scene that if I'm reading, it's like classical type of music. If I'm coding, it's techno, if you know, whatever, it just kind of goes with the context. So yeah, I kind of vibe with it, whatever. So what had a chance to check out your website and we're talking about your music and like stuff that you listen to, but you also have a bucket list of places that you want to travel to. I know you've already come up where I live, which is Vancouver, BC. You went to Whistler and you've got this large list. So how did you like come up with that list of places in the world you want to go to? Did you just like think of it and you're like, oh, this looks good from YouTube or like pictures. And I see you have a map in the background. Is it one of those scratch maps? (laughs) No, it's not actually that map. I helped another entrepreneur friend out and he sent me this and it's a pin map. You can't tell because the pins are white, unfortunately, but it's like places that we've been. And my family... So uh, you can't, yeah, you can't see it because the 
because of the pins, but the, what we're doing is my family is basically pinning where we're, where we've been. And so there's a couple of places in Western Europe and mostly the rest is in Canada and the United States, but that's for our family. And then individually, my wife has traveled a ton all over Western Europe and kind of Norway and Sweden and things like that. And then I did the United States. And so that's for our family though, because we're about ready to, to take a trip around the United States for probably, I guess, a couple of years. So hopefully nobody hears this that shouldn't hear this at, at this point in time, but that's the goal. So, <laughs> so we'll see how this plays out whenever publishing day happens. I happened sooner <laughs> than I thought. So anyway, um, but yeah, that's what the map is for. And we just love to travel. Our family just absolutely loves to travel. And the kids, I mean, they have all had passports since they were six months old and been on planes since 18 months. And we just don't, we don't travel as much as we'd like. I've heard of other people who travel a ton more and comparatively we don't, but like our family, when we do it, we absolutely love it. And we try and do it for like minimum of three weeks at a time if we can. Otherwise, what's the point? We don't want to snap photos and leave. We want to sit and enjoy it. So yeah, in regards to the bucket list, there's, I think it started with this idea that my wife and I had that we wanted to travel the world for a year. And we didn't get to because of the pandemic. Um, we had plans for it, but it, uh, those all got ruined. But the so we started with a couple of places, and it just when the pandemic happened, we actually started watching a YouTube couple, Kara and Nate. They're just super positive people. I don't know if anybody, if you guys have heard of them, but they've grown, and now they're like three million subscribers, and like it's crazy. But when we first started watching them, I don't even think they had hit a million yet. I think they were way under, but they. The thing that I liked about it is that they would just, it was a lot of information. It was a lot of different sites and scenery and stuff. And we kind of just picked and chose based on like this really surface level. Oh, that looks interesting. Oh, that looks interesting. And they did a good job of highlighting all like the big parts and pieces, but not being super duper touristy. So the way that they did it was really interesting. And so my wife and I, she had a list and I had a list. And we first thing we did is we just combined the things like, I want to see this and that and whatever. And we did this a long time ago when we first went traveling because we actually got um, sponsored by, I think it was Zappos, if I remember right, to like they gave us shoes and, and backpacks and other things, the ability for us to go if we would do the social media thing. And this was back in like 2008. And, and so we did that for a bit. And then at that point, we were like, okay, we're going to keep doing this. This is going to be fun. And we're, so we got this huge bucket list of places, but then we kind of had our own individual list. And then after watching like Kara and Nate, we kind of combined those together. And so pretty soon we just had this big, huge, long list. And we're like, okay, like I can't not, I can't have this bucket list and not go to start trying to check these places off. And some of them we've obviously done, but now it's just a, now it's a goal. Now we're like, okay, we got to go do all these things because it's just, the world's huge and variety of culture and everything that's out there. I mean, like, why stop? Like, why stop where you're at? Like, this, I don't know. Well, pandemic will stop you. That's why, but you know. <laughs> yeah. And you, you said something that that's like, I think is crucial. Like you have to go for a few weeks, you know, yeah. like if you just go for a day or two, it's like, okay, yeah, I saw Rome, but like, you know, did I? Um, right. Yeah. Did I? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You saw Rome, but you could have done yeah. that same trip by way of photograph, right? Like yeah. if you, if that's all you're doing, but yeah. Experiencing Rome is a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually uh, backpacking Europe when COVID hit. So I like fled, <laughs> you know, like, oh, man. came right back. So I, I'm, I'm on the same page with you. <laughs> yeah, man, that's heartbreaking. It's just, I mean, it's tough. It's like one of these things it, in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing, right? Like these are like 1% problems, like not an issue. Like we still have all our fingers and toes and we should be grateful for that. But nobody's coming to take them off and because we stole an apple because we need to feel, feed our family. But, you know, everybody's got their own kind of like, 
thing that they've dealt with in this pandemic and travel it to me travel is such an important deal and so it's sad to hear of everybody having similar kind of issues where it's like oh i had this trip planned or i was going to do a honeymoon or you know i was in europe yeah. did a podcast the other day the guy he literally hasn't lived at home li lived anywhere permanently for like 26 years and you know that stopped like he had to sit and like for somewhere for like a full year and a half before he could start doing anything again it was just to him it just changed his entire literally like his world like mm -hmm. could, how he did life so it's just it's interesting to hear some of these stories but yeah no so that's our bucket list yeah yeah that's awesome we saw it kind of going through some of your background you sold a bootstrap company in like 2007 as a, a solo founder can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about that yeah, I mean, it was a pretty small company, but the, you know, I got into, so way back in the day, this is like the, the kind of like the crux of the whole thing from, from my career for tech and business is I saw a friend make some money fixing computers at one point. And I was like, and I was just hanging out at his house. I had not, I didn't have a ton of interest in computers, but I saw him sell, he like bought a computer. He put like 40 bucks and a little time into it and they sold it for like $800. And I was like, dude, like, what are you doing? And so my interest was the business side of it. I was like, how did you make that money? And in high school, I mean, 800 bucks was a good chunk of change for a week and $40 spent. And so I was like, cool. All right. Well, how did you do that? And he's like, well, you know, I fixed this thing and here's how it went. And I said, okay, well, you need to teach me because I want to learn, I want to learn how to do this. It was all about the business. And he goes, well, do you know what a hard drive is? And I was like, no. And here, I'm going to date myself here. He goes, well, think of it as a really big floppy disk. And I was like, okay. So if anybody knows what a floppy disk is, now you know how old I am. But I was like, okay, that's, I got it. Totally. What's next? And he just walked me through the whole computer. And by the end of maybe a month of just hanging out with him and doing little things with him and troubleshooting and fixing a couple months, I was like, all right, I want to do it myself. And so I started doing it myself. And, and that's kind of where I got into tech. So if that tells you anything, it tells you that I'm actually... I leverage the tech for the business. So in regards to the business that I sold, I was really looking at just what are what is the market need? And so I was doing web design and development. And every time I would turn around to a new client and give them their site, they'd be like, hey, you know, we need to do some web hosting. We need Where do we get web hosting from? And I was like, oh, well, you can get it here. And back in the day, there was not a lot of great options. Any big company that existed was just, always trying to sell you the next thing, very cumbersome to work with. What you really needed was just something really bare bones. And so I created a really bare bones web hosting service. I, I sold with my design services. And then eventually what happened was I wanted to stop doing design services and I built a platform for rental, rental companies. So that had like property rentals. And so what I did is I would sell them this templated Wix or Weebly sort of version of like what a website might look like for the rental agency where they could go in and plug in their, all their properties and all the, put all the photos in and then just basically click a button that says, I want this on or off on my website. And then it, they could template it and change the customization of it and things like that. But then on top of that, I also sold the hosting services back to my hosting company and together. And then I built a search engine off of all of that information because it was all sitting in one database. And so I had, at the end of the day, in the area that I was in, I had more hits on that site than any other, like any of the, the agencies and all of them combined. <clears throat> and in fact, all of the rental agencies would get so many calls that they had to call me and say, hey, like, I need you to take down this info because I was actually ending up 
fronting the market, I would go out and I'd pick up all their little pieces of paper that they had at their front desk. And I'd put all the inventory in my system. <clears throat> all right, copy. And so I would put them in my system and then I build my search engine off of it. And then they get all the calls. And so they'd call me and be like, Hey, that one's gone. And I'm like, why, why don't you, you know, take this site over and own it. And by the way, I'm going to run the search engine and oh, and by the way, you're going to pay me hosting services. And so they were kind of a little bit intermingled, but the idea was that it was from web design all the way through to hosting. And at one point we got to the place where Craigslist came in. So they kind of took over a bit of our marketplace a little bit with the rental properties piece of it. And so what I started to do was kind of, I tried a little bit harder to sell that service to the agencies again, just as the, without the Craigslist kind of piece to it. And it didn't really fly. And so I started to separate those two businesses. And one was one ended up being Perfect Space and that I kept that name. And the other ended up, I was called Property Essentials. And it was really about the property management platform and then the hosting company. And so I sold that off to a competitor who was in the area. And so <clears throat> I wanted out of the business. I was done with it. I was kind of bored with it and they wanted it. And so like, great, you can have it. And they basically turned it all, they, they already had a hosting company and they took that and merged all of my clients and merged it with theirs. And, and it was a match made in heaven. That's crazy. That was yeah. like a multitude of upsells and cross sells and intertwining, <laughs> like everything that people want to do these days with their e-commerce business. You did that mm. in the day when it wasn't even really spoken about. I mean, you probably go to like Best Buy or something and you get upsold like some, I don't know, uh, warranty. And here you are selling someone, hey, you need this in order to build on top of this. And you also need this. Yeah. But this is the other company I'm selling you to wholesale. Like, yeah. That's all stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, it was a fun time. I mean, I was in college. I went back to school. So I didn't, I wasn't, I w it wasn't like I went out of high school and went straight to college. I went out of high school. I bummed around for a couple of years. And then when I was 24, I went back to college. And so this was, I already been around the block uh, for quite a while and had businesses running and things like that. So it kind of, I kind of figured out some stuff um, that worked well and figured out what the need was to some, to in some areas and kind of, then I narrowed it down to a specific geographic region and just tried to solve pain points within my region as opposed to everywhere. And that's, so I already had this experience behind me that I could leverage. And I think that's what helped me out at that point. And because I was in college, you know, I was doing the college thing where I'm taking the grants and scholarships and like whatever I could get. And then working part-time at our, you know, within the college for a work-study program and things like that. So, I mean, my bills were paid. Like I could have sat there and played Counter-Strike all day if I wanted to, but like, I just, I was like, I like business. It's way more fun. And I, I still like Counter-Strike, but I like business because it's like, it gives you some productivity and it's future focused. And I, I don't have to eat ramen all day if I don't want to. So <laughs> quick, quick fact, I think Counter-Strike was actually made in Vancouver, BC, the developer. Was it really? Yeah. So I was also awesome. connection to it when I played it as well. I was like, oh yeah, it's made here. And they'd had these hardcore like tournaments on like yeah. winning championships back in the day when it was like, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars or a thousand bucks. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a great game way before Call of Duty. Yeah. So, so speaking of, so speaking of Vancouver, so I was in at that time when we were talking about this whole thing, I was in Bellingham, which is just South of the border of Vancouver, BC. So I'm, we would go up to Vancouver. Actually, my friends went up to Vancouver all the time and like go into the convention center unannounced and without passes. And, you know, we'd go hike, hike, what was it? Grouse, Grouse mountain. Is that what it was? Yep. Grouse yeah. Grand, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we, yeah. All the things. It's good times. Nice.
Awesome. Is this around the time frame when you and Chris Messina like popularized the hashtag or is that a different time frame? No, this that came way after. So let's see, that was probably around 2000, I think, uh, 2000 to 2004, roughly, is when I was building that business and working on that. And then we moved from Bellingham to San Diego, California. I want to say that was 2005. And I think I met Chris right around just after that, maybe 2006 or something like that. And it wasn't until 2008. 2008 was when the hashtag happened. Yeah. So we kind of have the story behind how the whole hashtag worked, but like on your side, what were you responsible for with the whole hashtag situation? And then how did you guys actually implement things and get things going? Man, it sounds so organized. Like we, like we <laughs> planned it. Like, <laughs> so our first thought, our first plan for world domination of the hashtag was no, like we had no, I mean, honestly, like. I had read Chris's blog post on what the hashtag was. We had met at a bar camp, which is, I don't know if he mentioned this, but bar camp was an unconference back in the day. I don't even know if it still goes on, but it was an unconference. It was like, basically you come and you, anybody can write anything on the wall. And it was like, here's the rooms we have. Here's the time slots we have. Fill in the blank. And if you want to talk about knitting, fill it in on room 102 for 12 o'clock. And you know, anybody who wants to listen to you talk about knitting or discuss knitting can go there. If you want to talk about, you know, Twitter or something else, anything else, robotics, you can fill that in. And so he, he was kind of helping to organize these unconferences, these bar camps. And it was there that he kind of presented it the, for one of the first times. And then eventually he went to Twitter and, and talked about it at Twitter itself. And so he was kind of propagating this idea and I had heard about it, knew about it, read the blog posts, all of those kinds of things. But when the time came for me, it was interesting because I didn't really think it all the way through. Like, oh, I'm going to go do this and it's going to have this big, huge, massive appeal or even the, like not even what I was doing without the hashtag and then what I was doing with the hashtag. Neither one of those really did I think this is going to blow up and be a big deal. Mostly, I just thought this is interesting information when I was so, as the story goes, I was here in San Diego and my wife and I were on a boat. We saw the fires kind of start up and we were like, wow, that's kind of crazy stuff. We had heard about this in the past. We didn't experience the fires a couple of years earlier here that were really bad too. But when we saw it, we were like, oh, that's kind of weird. We got back to the house and that's when I started posting things on blog on my blog post. And I was like, oh, here's some information I'm getting. So I started putting it on my blog, but it was too much information. And I thought, well, well, this is getting to be a bit crazy. So I'm just going to go to Twitter because, and nobody really used Twitter that much back in the day. I mean, kind of, but it wasn't like it was today. You know, it wasn't a household name, but my friends used it. And the people that I kind of went around with used it. And so I thought, well, too much information on blogs um, for blog posts. I'm just going to post little bits and pieces on Twitter. So I started doing that. And then it really became a major emergency in San Diego. And I mean, really went crazy. And when that happened, it was so much information that was coming out. It was like about one item per minute, roughly is what I was posting. It was just constant. And it was all relatively unique stuff. It wasn't like I was reposting the same stuff over and over again. And when I was doing that, I was always putting San Diego fires in there. And the reason why I was doing that was because I thought the information was interesting, but there's no way anybody's going to find this later. So for posterity's sake, how do I make this searchable? And I thought, well, I'm going to put everything San Diego fires on here. So if anybody searches for anything San Diego fires sometime in the future, they're going to go back and they're going to see this history of events that had happened. And I don't know which of this massive amount of information that I'm pushing out here is going to be interesting, 
to anybody, but it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you don't really, you, I don't know if I just watched this movie called the aeronauts and he, this guy was taking down notes, scientific notes and throwing it out with birds out of the air balloon, because he was like, here's what's going on in the, in this crazy world above the clouds, right? He's exploring. And it was one of those things, like, he doesn't know what's going to be interesting. He's just writing down, here's all the readings that I've got. And he's just throwing it out. And I felt like, kind of like that, like, I don't know what's going to be interesting yet. I'm just going to throw everything out there and just see what happens. But what I do know about search is that's prevalent and that's not going anywhere. So I'm going to put San Diego fires as the search term because anybody searching for it's going to find this information and maybe that'll be interesting at some point. And then I and then Chris um, hit me up and he was like, hey, do you remember this thing about the hashtag? I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I totally forgot. Great use case. Let's just go to use that. It'll shorten up the amount of space I'm using so I can get more information into each tweet. And maybe that'll be a thing. I don't know. But it's searchable. I mean, if somebody searches, I already knew that like if you search on Google, they kind of try and like mix and match and they don't really care about the spaces or spelling or that kind of thing. So I'm like, they're smart enough. They'll figure it out. So sure, I'll start prefixing everything with San Diego fires with the hashtag. And that's that was the genesis really of the actual use case. So it wasn't intentional in the sense of like, I knew what was going to happen in the future and how big it was going to blow up. What it was, the idea that I guess, you might've heard this concept before, like we're kind of opening up the, I would say attack surface for opportunity, right? So it's like, okay, well, I don't know, but he, I'm going to do these things because maybe it'll be useful in the future. So I'm going to kind of do this and open it up and see, and maybe luck will strike and maybe something will come of it. Maybe it'll be useful. I don't know, but if I don't do it that way, then it's not going to be useful at all, right? If I don't do something, if I don't put it on Twitter, if I don't post about it, it's not useful at all. I got to do something. And, you know, other than the fact that my employer at the time really hated that I took two days off to do it, like it turned out pretty well. So, <laughs> and, and just for context for, for people who are listening before, you know, hashtags, it was like, we just index across any words that were popular. So for San Diego fire, you would get fire into San Diego fire, San Diego bushfire, the name of the fire, and all of that is just relating to the same thing. So yeah. without organizing information properly like that, it becomes impossible to have one coherent conversation. Yeah. And it was interesting to see how it propagated too, because it, I think that was the, that's the whole point of hashtags. I think people forget, like, I think people nowadays think, oh, hashtags are used for marketing. Well, I mean, yeah. But that wasn't their original use case, and it's not the only use case. It's used for, you know, political groupings. It's used for conference groupings. It's used for context in whatever it is that I'm talking about. If, you know, it's kind of self-grouping mechanism, and nobody owns it. Nobody can stop you from using it. Nobody can stop you from making up a new one. And that's the point. That was the, in, that's, in fact, if you go back and read Chris's blog post, that is exactly the point. It is this open-ended free market of, you know, grouping mechanisms. And... I think one of the nice things about that is it, if you think about how we kind of group our lives, like I don't explicitly, like this is my favorite metaphor here because I just dunk on Facebook, but I don't like, okay, let's you and I, like we're not friends, quote unquote, on Facebook, Twitter or anything, right? But if we were, would I go up to you and say like in real life, would I say, hey, Nicholas, will you be my friend? Like, no, that never happens. Like you don't explicitly ever have to say, yes, I will. And then when do we dissolve our friendship? When like, you know, you didn't buy me that Coke that I wanted or like, I mean, I don't know, like 
you posted a picture that I didn't like, or we got, I mean, it's not explicit. It's never explicit. I have people in my life that I think are friend I'm friends with, and they probably don't. <laughs> so, so like, I don't know, maybe Chris thinks that way. <laughs> I don't know. But like, and, and it goes vice versa. It's not as explicit as like a Facebook friend request. Like that's completely artificial. And I think the nice thing about hashtags is it helps to kind of make it feel a little more natural because you can do whatever you want. Right. So if you want to, like, I want to be a hashtag of one, <laughs> like, I, you know, I'm a wolf pack of one. Fine. I make up my own hashtag and nobody else can use it. And if anybody does, I'm going to make up a new one. I'm going to put a two behind it, whatever. But, or if you want to be in a group, then you just use the hashtag and you're in the group, you're in the community and in the conversation. And that's much more natural. Like I could go up to a conversation on the street and sit there and might be awkward, but I could just walk up and start talking about whatever it is that they're talking about because it's interesting or because I'm weird. And either way it works. It's, I'm a part of the group because I used it. You know, they could kick me out and, but I could still talk about it on my way down the street if I wanted to. So it's my subject. Right. And I think that's the point is kind of the freedom of ideas. And that's that, if you look back at Chris's original post, that was the beauty of it all. So could, could you imagine if like the hashtag was there in real life and you could see where the conversation was happening in your city and you just say, Hey, this conversation is happening about soccer i'm gonna go here you like go 20 minutes across the street and like in this big group you start talking that's the new yeah. innovation of hashtags <laughs> there you go we're the all gonna wear digital labels <laughs> digital like a hashtag of what i'm talking about today you know yeah. it's, it's just the recycling now. of the the sports bar that is like yeah it's this college's sports bar there you go i'm in the hashtag yep. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I mean, and we all want to belong. Like, I mean, that's part of it too, right? So like if I get to use the hashtag and I'm an instant part of an instant member, then I have some belonging. There's some like psychological reasons for that. So support for it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, let's change gears a little bit to kind of what you're working on now. So there's, you know, looking through your background, you've done, you know, a number of companies working at companies, like making companies, advising them on the hospitality and travel space. And now you're, you know, founder CTO at Room Steals. So can you talk to us a little about that and a little bit how you got into the space at all? Yeah, it was another one of those things where I didn't necessarily plan it. It just kind of happened. So broadening the surf attack surface for luck. And so, yeah, I, you know, we ran an, my business partner and I ran an agency for about 10 years in San Diego. Excuse me. And we kind of got burnt out on the service side of it. So we started building product and the product that we had just didn't grow as fast as we wanted. And so we kind of transitioned and said, you know, let's take a break and go get um, jobs and do the, you know, the traditional thing. And so when I did that, I worked for a company that was in, in the travel space. They were building a platform for smaller and mid-sized hotels and hostels to use for everything from, you know, start to finish in the whole kind of manage the property, if you will. And, but I got assigned to a project for some of the investors that, that had to do with building out inventory or building out a kind of a decision engine on how to book events for groups. And this was a world I didn't understand. Like we all kind of get it in the sense of like, you go to booking.com and you book a hotel for yourself and you can like go through the mental processes to how that all works. But group booking was new to me. And so I had to learn a ton of information about that and where the inventory sources were, how brokering happens, all this kind of stuff. Eventually I moved on to another company where <clears throat> they were still doing group booking, but they also had an, a hand in the kind of individual space. And what happened was, is that we had some access to inventory sources that I had never seen before. And I, what I learned in working with this company was that the 
the hotel industry is kind of kind of does a similar thing with their rooms that airlines do. You know, when you like, if I don't know if you guys do um, bookings with like points and miles, but if, if you do like travel hacking like that, you kind of understand there's only a certain subgroup of seats in each class of an airplane that are designated for the point people. Like if you're going to book on points, there's like, I don't know, two rows that uh, the whole airline that you can book on points and then they reserve the rest of it for all the paying customers and stuff. And that's, they also do the same thing for, they have like, maybe it depends on the airline you're talking about, but maybe in the, you know, the basic economy class, you might have that group grouped by like five different sections of things. One might be for another pilot that's coming on board or for some partner they have. And then they have the points people. And then they have, you know, the people who are, you know, paying the schleps that they're paying money out of that pocket. And then, you know, you have all of these groups that they're chopping their inventory up into Well, hotels are doing the same thing. And, and, what they're doing is they're taking that inventory and then they're putting it out onto different channels. Some of those channels are retail like booking.com and or like online OTA online travel agencies like booking.com or Expedia or whatever. Some they're keeping for their own in-house. So they're only going to sell to those people who are looking on Marriott.com and some, you know, they might even keep a couple just in-house, not broadcast anywhere, but that they're going to hold on to for maybe VIPs if they're kind of that kind of property. And then a whole bunch of other options too. So they have other inventory sources, or I say inventory sources, but other ways that they chop that up and they might send some out to, or put some available to people who are running activities or group things together, like air, airlines and activities and hotels. And so that kind of inventory source way back in the day when online travel agencies came about, they were all bundled together like that. And what happened was the Expedia's and bookings of the world started separating them all out and said, oh, we're going to sell it, this airline ticket separate. Even though it was supposed to be together, we're going to sell it separately. And we're going to sell this hotel separately. And we're going to sell this activity separately. And so, and then we're going to keep the margin uh, for that instead of giving that bundled together to the consumer and make it a package price. And that was the intention. That's what used to happen before OTAs came around. But anyway, that's the history. The inventory source though that I found was that bit, the wholesale inventory that everybody's now sliced and diced and supposedly it was supposed to go for a packaged price and nobody does that anymore. And so when I found that, I was like, oh, well, who gets access to this? And I'm like, well, anybody in a group. Okay, what defines a group? I don't know, call it a hashtag. I mean, it's literally the same thing, like call it whatever you want, like make up a group as long as we know, as you know, who's in the group. That's the only thing. You gotta know who's in the group and they have to have a reason for being there. And so I'm like, okay, well then... Why isn't anybody just making this massive group that just exists because people want to be in the group that gets this pride? Like if I can be in the group just because I say I'm in the group and I can book this hotel at like 90% off, why couldn't anybody do this? And they're like, oh no, anybody can. Like, little, why, what are we doing here? Like, I, I'm trying to lead the horse to water. I'm like, come on, like, what are we doing here? And I'm like, so everybody's like, no. And I said, okay, look, let's flip the industry. Let's do a SaaS model where it's a subscription basis. And the subscription basis will be roughly the amount that a normal person would pay if in margin, if they were only going to take a week trip, right? But if they're going to take two, two weeks, we give that value back to them. So what if it's that? Oh man. Okay. Just want to make sure that the, I saw jitter. I want to make sure we're still online here. So anyway, so I thought, well, let's flip it. Let's Call, do a SaaS model instead of a margin model. We'll take no commission, no margin. And so we'll just take a subscription, but we'll make the subscription low enough that anybody can join because there's these other groups who are out there that have like this quote unquote luxury 
thing, they're doing the exact same thing. It costs like $1,500 or $2,000 a year. And you supposedly you're going to travel enough to get that money back, but then you get these massive discounts. Well, it's the same inventory source that we have. The difference is that we're not charging that amount. And we're also not going to be your concierge. But so for anybody who's DIY that books on booking.com, like a common person would just check out the wholesale price that you would have access to if you were a part of a group. If it makes sense, pay us and then you get access to it. That's all there is. Like nobody else is offering this. So that's to me, this is all a bunch of no brainer stuff. And I'm like, look, there's a Walmart model here happening at any point in time. And we're just going to be first to do it. So that's what we did. I'm like, I asked my boss, I was like, Hey, we should do this. And he's like, nah, I don't think that'll work. I'm like, great. Can you sign this dotted line and I'll go do it. And he's like, yeah, sure. Fine. <laughs> I'm like, great. I'll see you later. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, who knows? He may be right at the end of the day. He may be wrong, but whatever the case is, and he's a smart guy. So no, you know, discredit to him, but, but you know, I have my theories that people will, there's a large group of people who want the discount and are willing to sacrifice bits and pieces for that. Just like people who you know, do points bookings on airlines. They're willing to sacrifice certain things. And, you know, I think it's the same here. And sometimes those discounts can be absolutely gargantuan and way overweigh the, the downside to, you know, paying $95 or being in a SaaS or, you know, maybe not getting certain amenities or whatever. So uh, yeah, it's, it can be massive. So that's what I'm doing today is I'm giving people access to that crazy little nugget that I found somewhere in a deep dark hole. So <laughs> I love how you, at the beginning, you're thinking, hey, is anyone doing this? Are you sure? You want to try this out? And you're like, no, you don't want to do it? I guess I'll do it. All right. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it, it kind of is th- similar to the, the reason why I did the, the hashtag stuff that posts on Twitter is because it's like, look, this is a, almost like a public service is the way I think of it. People should have access to this. If they could have access to it, why don't they have access to it? And it's only because some gatekeeper is saying no. And I'm like, well, I'll be the gatekeeper and I'll say yes. Like, I don't know, like, whatever, let's try it out. Like, why not throw, you know, broaden the attack surface again and see what happens. So I don't know if it's going to work, but I think it would. And if being the traveler that, that we are, I would totally take advantage of this. In fact, I do mm-hmm. all the time. I take advantage of our own inventory and I, if I'm going to do it, I figure I'm sure somebody else out there is going to want to do it too. So hopefully more than some one person, but yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. Like when I read about what this was, I was like, Oh, so the word group buying that I've heard is just nonsense. Okay. All right. Awesome. <laughs> Glad yeah. to hear it. <laughs> yeah. The only thing that's different, like, I mean, the group piece is interesting because like, if you're going to buy more than 10 rooms, then you should have a broker work that out for you because you can get a better deal with the broker and that's why if you look on like booking.com or anywhere else like they kind of almost disincentivize you to book more than like four to six rooms because you're probably going to get a better deal and a lot of times the inventory the hotels that put the inventory out there don't put more than a few rooms at a time out that you can buy all at once so from that point of view the group booking space still is a big industry like billions if not trillions of dollars goes through that space for brokers tons of money to be made there. If you want to go do the service side of things, I particularly got burnt out on the service side. So I'm like, let's do the automated side of things or the DIY side. And I'm like, let's do the onesie twosies who want that. And all the only thing stopping them or you from booking is because you're not quote unquote in the group. And it's like, well, then just sign in with 
your Google account and guess what? You're in the group now. So like, whatever. So like, I'm going to, I'm going to reduce that friction to zero as best as possible. I'm actually going to Hawaii next week and I'm like, should I check out this group and cancel my reservation and try and book one week before I go? <laughs> you, it's always worth a shot. Like that's the thing is like we give people access to it for free so you can look at it. And if it doesn't make sense, then don't become a member. But if it does, then, you know, you could weigh that out and say like, ah, oh, we know we're going here. We're getting the same room, but the rate is, you know, saving us $600. Well then, I mean, I will judge you if you don't make that call. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's nice. I, yeah. I will actually check that out right after this. So how are you like growing room steals right now? Like what avenues are you going through? Are you just doing organic through SEO or what are you doing? Yeah, that's actually probably our biggest challenge right now, because if you look at booking.com and Expedia, they both play in the pay-per-click and the SEO space. So they've got billions of dollars. Um, we're going to have a hard time competing with them on that. And so we don't really play in that space right now. I think at some point we might, but it's going to be probably going after programmatic SEO and very niche focused type of things, more for exposure and also looking at the end, not so much like the massive population, but looking at the edges. I think the opportunity is always on the edges of the demographics or the psychographics, or I don't even like using those terms, but <clears throat> the people who have a desire to, to book an accommodation, a paid accommodation through a hotel, those, whatever those people are, the desire at that moment in time for us is the thing. It's not so much the general user. So that's why we built the Chrome extension because we're like, well, you could just install a Chrome extension and then just walk away, like never use it if you don't want to. But the moment you're actually going and trying to book something is when it's going to pop up. We don't look at anything else other than like when you're on booking.com or Google hotels or Expedia.com or something. If you're on one of those sites, and you're on a hotel with dates, so you have intention, that's when our extension comes to life. Not before then, we don't do anything prior to that. And all you have to do is sign in with your Google account, which if you're on Chrome, you probably have one. And so, and then it just looks in the background and says, okay, is do we have a better price for this hotel on these dates? So for me, it's all about like that. Like it's the distribution of like, I don't wanna bug people. I, I don't, I wish ads were better. I wish ads, I always had this thing. I said this when the day when like, I saw advertising get crazy, like way, way back in the early days, back in the property essentials, perfect space days. I wish ads were creepy, creepier, actually. I wish they were so creepy that they knew exactly what I wanted at the time that I wanted it and would give it to me right there. Like, I'm like, oh man, I could, you really use some Excedrin for this headache that I have. Great. Pop an ad up. Let me buy it. And let me, I, I solve my pain right now. I would love it to be more creepy with some caveats, right? Like, I don't want them to go. I want them to be creepy, but not crazy. And I don't want that data to be shared. But that my point in going off on the, the tangent here is that our intention for distribution is not to broadcast in people's face and be there all the time. Our intention is to be there when you need us. Otherwise we're wasting our time and yours. And so I don't like the way that a lot of stuff is done these days. And you know, similar to the booking stuff, like why couldn't I have booked in a group just by saying I'm in a group? Like, let's just change that model, right? So why should I advertise with when it's stopping somebody from doing what they're wanting to do? I'd rather at, quote unquote advertise with our extension at the right time, at the right place, when you need us the most, when you want us actually, and not because I say it, but because you said it, because you're on the booking site, you're the one searching. So my distribution model right now, there's a bit of education, which is why I'm going to podcast. And I 
appreciate that you you've had me here. This is not a paid sponsorship or anything, but I, but I appreciate being able to talk about it because this is our, one of our primary methods is like being on podcasts and talking about fun things like this. And people ask cool questions and I get to talk about it. The other, you know, is really just about letting people being hopefully being remarkable enough that people will talk about it. So a lot of word of mouth marketing. I think we can spend a lot of time on the other stuff, the SEO and the paid ads and all the other things. But if we get people to, if we think that if people like our service well enough, and if it does the job it should, then we should be in business and we should be continuing to grow. If not, like I hate to be such a, like a simplistic person in, in this world because we know that marketing wins, right? But I have this like fundamental belief that like, if you're not valuable to the consumer, why do you exist as a business? Like you can fake it till you make it and you can be a big company and stuff. But I don't know, to me, that would just burn me out. I don't want to run a company like that. So I want to run a valuable company to people. And if people think it's valuable, then they'll talk to other people. And I don't know, maybe I'm way too, I don't know, Pollyanna for this, but I like it. So it make, it gets me up in the morning. So I think it's actually cool because you're like a smaller company you're competing with these bigger ones. So it's almost like a David and Goliath story as if you want to like compare it to that. And I think there's lots of innovative ways in which you can market. Like uh, Nick is the tech guy, but I'm the sales and marketing guy. But I think there's lots of great ways that you could probably try out that wouldn't be as expensive as the traditional routes and you wouldn't be competing in those avenues. So yeah, like you're saying, you come jumping on podcasts and all that stuff, but like TikTok has great organic growth. If you can reach out and connect with TikTok influencers, like pretty good at Instagram and Facebook, not ads, but like if you just connect with the right groups, I think you get yourself out there and there's lots of tribal enthusiasts. So yeah. I think there's great ways that you can grow it. Yeah. And that's the other thing too, is we are partnering. So there's a subset of group of like, you know, travel enthusiasts, like you said, that we're partnering with. And that, so I don't some of them you might call influencers, some of them not, but some of them are other companies that are doing travel as maybe even a, an ancillary piece of their business. And it's a piece that comes along, but it's not their primary objective. If you searched for travel, you're not going to find these companies, but they're a part of their business. So those are the, those companies I really like to partner with. And I'm not poo-pooing the entire like advertising marketing world. Not at all. In fact, this is one of the things that I'm weakest at and I respect the most because to me, it, the psychology and the statistics, if you merge those two things together, you have basically modern day marketing. And I love that kind of stuff. It get, It's like crack to me, but I also know that I'm not good at it. And so like, so, you know, Daryl, if you want to uh, take this offline, we can do a consulting gig later. <laughs> like, I'll take all your advice. I'd love because For this sure. is the thing that, like, I, I love this stuff and I want to be better at it. And I think as a small company, it, it behooves us to be good at it. But it's uh, it is definitely difficult to to. You're right, and it's in the you know David and Goliath kind of thing. Like, it is definitely one of the most difficult things. I think distribution and marketing are two of the most difficult things that I feel like any company who's starting up these days is going to run into. I think everybody thinks, oh, you know, you don't have a great idea. You know, well, the idea is only you know one small piece of the the puzzle. My big question with anybody that I talk to is like, what's your distribution model? Like, how are you going to get this out there? Because if you don't know that, like, what are you even doing right now? Like, <laughs> if you don't know where your customers are, and I'm talking to myself, because like, I don't actually even know where my customers are. We started it and it was not my intention to start this way. I was like, oh, this thing has to exist. So I just made it. And I'm like, oh crap, where are my people? Like, I don't even know. And <laughs> If I would have like consulted myself back when I started it, I would have been like, no, slow your roll. Like start with where are your people and go make sure that like what, you know, 
what they want is what you're about ready to build. Because you know you can build it, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. Doesn't mean anybody cares. And so anyway, I think that like I would like to know the people who actually care about what we're building. I think one of the problems that we run into is that there's an educational aspect to it. Like people don't realize that there is a hotel source that exists that if you just say I'm in the group, you get access to. People are afraid these days to be in a group because they think that all you're going to do is blast them with marketing and rightly so, mm-hmm. or use their data in terrible ways and rightly so. But the problem is that like this education, I can't take our inventory sources and our prices and put it out there publicly and compete because of industry rules we will get shut down immediately. And so we're forced to make sure that people are in our group and that we know who they are. And, mm-hmm. and so there's a bit of education that's required <clears throat> and that creates the hurdle for that broad mass appeal because you can't just go check out the price like everybody else. And people think, Oh, well, why can't I, I should be able to. And I'm like, you, you know, and they're like, you guys are bad because you're making me sign in. I'm like, nah, I'm not, but it's hard for me to explain that on a landing page. Right. So, so I love any idea like the TikTok. Yes. I I love the concept. I'm not going to do it. I'm too old for that, but I would love to hire somebody to do that. (laughs) But you don't need, yeah. Yeah. The thing is you don't need to do the TikTok yourself. You just partner with influencers who are travelers and like, because it has such crazy organic growth it's relatively low in terms of cost and partnering with TikTok right now compared to say like Instagram, Instagram influencers Mm -hmm. are going to like shoot up the roof and just be like so much money. Also, YouTube is expensive, but it's also an amazing platform as well because there's lots of organic growth. But yeah, again, we can definitely take this offline and I'm more than happy to help and make suggestions. And then maybe I'm secretly, gonna... I just became the CMO of your company, but <laughs> <laughs> totally, absolutely. You just inceptioned me. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally good. Yeah. Now I'm going to start a podcast and have you on it and I'm going to have you explain all the secrets to me. So Yeah. <laughs> You Brilliant. just saw through Brilliant the move. of this podcast. <laughs> you're, you're just fractional CMO for everybody that you are, are like having on as a guest, right? So yeah, I by the it. way, I do this yeah. and you can do this. <laughs> well, you're obviously good at what you do because you got me here by way of your little, like your Twitter hack that I absolutely loved. I thought that was fantastic. That you was actually Nick. This. Nick's a tech oh, guy really, Nick? and he okay. did the, he rolled out the marketing. So I'll give him props for that one. <laughs> can you, can, okay, just for your own listeners here, you have to explain this because it worked for me and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. So can I, you explain what you did? Yeah, I, I have to be totally honest. I pulled a lot of this from Daniel CH, who was on here before. He just kind of tweeted out like, maybe I'll do something like this. I'm like, I'm going to test it. Let's do it. <laughs> so I can't awesome. take all the credit for that. But I, I have a public list. So there's public lists and private lists on Twitter, right? You have a private list. You put people on there. They don't see when you're on the list. Like it's just for your own use. Then there's public lists and public lists are everyone sees it. And when you add to one of the lists, they get notified. So I made a public list that's like podcast or podcast wish list or something like that. Yeah. And it's like, who would I love to get on this podcast? And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to add people. They're going to get notified when they, when they get added. And it's just going to be a little ping, like podcast. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. And you know what else I thought was brilliant about it? is I actually, before I responded to you, I looked at the list, right? <clears throat> so here's the psychological hack here that I feel like you might've done. I don't even know if you knew you did this, <laughs> but you put people on there like like Julian and I don't even know, like like the big wigs, right? The big wigs mm. that I'm like, I follow these people. I would like to listen to these people. Wait a minute, you added me to that list? 
holy crap, like I'm in that crowd? Like, how did I get in that crowd? I don't even know. Okay, I'm in. Yes, let's do it. I mean, like I automatically felt like I was part of a tribe that I would did not belong. And I was like, this is going to be great. I don't even know how many like listeners you have. You might have one listener. It might be your mom. And I am very happy to be here. So <laughs> I, and I feel like, again, we've gone full inception because we, we hashtagged you into coming on and talking about the hashtag. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. It's just an incestuous circle. So, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So, so we kind of talked a bit about, you know, companies you've worked with. You've also been an investor and mentor in like a bunch of companies. Can you talk a little bit about like what's kind of been the through line? What's like the things where you either find yourself saying this a lot or you're like, this has been the most high leverage thing that I've talked to people about? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I heard somebody say like when they, when a podcast guest stops and says, Ooh, that's a good question. It's usually because they have no answer for it yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So I haven't been asked that question before, but it's a really, it is a really insightful question. And I think, I mean, I have, man, you should probably talk to the people who I talk to because they'll probably tell you, I say the same things all the time. You should probably talk to my wife. You should have her on. She'll, she'll get a kick out of that question. I think the things that you know, that's changed over time. I think the things that I think about the most and that I tell people the most to focus on are things that are activities that are high leverage. I think, well, let me back up. I think there's the way I think I see like the kind of like deep down tasks of the day. I see this often where people are focused on activities. Like this is more of a productivity hack kind of a thought. people are focused on activities that I call secondary activities. So there's primary and there's secondary activities. And the primary ones are the ones that are focused on getting you the money, getting you the traction, doing the thing that like you should be doing this. I, I would say get the money, right. And I'm going to come back. I'm going to put a little asterisk on that because I'm going to come back to that. So primary task, make the money. The ones closest to making the money are the ones that are going to make the most money. So the salespeople, the marketers, those people make a lot of money because they're the closest to that is those dollars. The people who are doing the support, the administrative work, those people are furthest away from the dollar and they make the least amount of money. So from a career perspective, if you want to move from a career point of view, get closer to the money. That's number one. From a company point of view, if you're spending more than, I would say, more than 50% of your time on administrative work, or I would even say more than 40% of your time on administrative work, you're doing the wrong thing. Like you are focused on the secondary task on supporting your business, not actually running your business. And if you, what you need to do is shift and get into that primary task mode and then pay somebody else to do the secondary tasks, especially if you're the owner or the founder or the salesperson, the, I'm sorry, I'm clearing my throat. Your editing is going to have to be on point here. So yeah, so I think, as a founder or the person who's running the company or the closest to the money, you're the one who's got the most directive on where that or most direction on where that company is going to go. Spend your time on the primary tasks and stop spending as much time as you can on the secondary tasks. This is outsourcing to VAs, getting assistance, anything you can. If it's billing account accountants, I love accountants. I pay them the minute I start up a company. Like I don't even waste time. Like they're like, do you have any revenue? I'm like, no, you have nothing to do here, but you're hired. <laughs> I don't care. I don't ever want to touch an invoice ever again. I don't want to touch costs. I don't, you know, none of those things. Like, so that's number one. Um, 
distribution model that I, I talked about, what is your distribution model? Understand that. Like, if you don't know that, your product is pointless for existing. And I think that's a harsh way to say it, but it, I think that the problem is you're very likely to die if you don't have, if you don't understand where your customers are coming from. And that's likely, I really like the jobs to be done framework. And I keep repeating this to everybody that we get into this type of conversation. <clears throat> we get here by a lot of people are like, oh, I have this product and I want to go do these things. And, you know, what do you think we should do? Should we tap into B2B or B2C? And I'm like, why are you asking me? I'm not your consumer. Like, go ask your, to go do a customer interview. Do you know where these people are? And people, I had somebody the other day say, oh, we're, you know, we want to do this focus group. Like, we're going to invite people into this focus group. I'm like, okay, why? Well, we want to know what, with, you know, about these things. We want to ask these questions. I'm like, okay, but that's actually not the value. Like, whatever they tell you, that's all BS. Whatever they answer. Actually, the real value is the fact that you got anybody who cared about your product in the first place to your focus group. That's what you care about. That's your distribution model. How'd you get them there? Great. Go tap into that more often. Instead of putting in them a focus group, sell them the product. If they don't buy the product, you don't have a focus group then either because they didn't care. So, so distribution method is like very key. And I think I'm probably harping on that because I'm an engineer and I think I'd speak to a lot of engineers and a lot of people who are in that space that they're like, I, I had to build this product. It had to exist. And I'm like, yeah, but does anybody else care about it? Like, you don't know that you just built it because it was fancy and fun. So I think, that, and then the last piece, I think that I keep going back to, which relates back to the money. And this is going to get, I'm going to go off on another tangent for a second here, but I think this is more important. And I said, I've said this time and time again, and I keep going back to this over and over again, because I haven't found anything that, that says I'm wrong here, but <clears throat> I think the money is a bad proxy for time. I think that every, when I say we focus on the primary and the secondary tasks and get closer to the money and run, that's great. But in reality, why are we running these companies in the first place? I think is a big question. Like, are you going to burn yourself out? Are you doing growth for growth? Are you just like these kinds of questions, like get closer to the money and all of that kind of stuff is fine. But I think we need to be careful too. I think as a small company founder and working like a lot of the community that I'm in right now are all kind of people who are trying to build calm, bootstrapped companies, um, not crazy, not growth for growth's sake, not VC backed, like just, they're just trying to like make a living wage for everybody who's in it, make a good company and live off that company and provide value to the world. And, and if you're doing that, then the primary secondary task is good, but it's a tactical focus, not a strategic focus for your own life. And I think the, the strategic focus for your own life is, is to remember that money is a really bad proxy for time. We think we go get money and that's going to solve our problems. But as you read any study from anybody who has a bunch of money, they're all like, yeah, it solved my problem up to a point, right? I was super duper poor. When I got about $100,000, I'm not super poor anymore. I don't really have to think about money. And so then what, right? Anything after that is incremental. What you're really shooting for is probably your time. Not always, but I think a lot of time, a lot of times people are like, oh, if I had this money, I could go live, I could have a boat, go live on an island. You know, I could go do all these things. I could fly around the world, yada, yada, all money, right? But it's not. If you think about what those phrases are, it's actually, I'm doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, and how I want to do it. That has nothing to do with money, except for that money gives you the accessibility to do those things. But 
that means that money's the tool. It's not the end goal. So it's a proxy, but it's not really a great proxy because you could have all the money in the world working as a Wall Street broker and have no time. And I would tell you that the person who down the street that I know that's sitting on the beach eating ramen is more wealthy than that person and probably more empathetic too. Because anybody who's focused that much on money has very little empathy in my experience. And I think that empathy is more valuable than the dollar. And I tweeted that the other day and I keep thinking about it. And it was kind of a random tweet, but it, I keep, you can't get it out of my head. And I truly believe that. And so I think that money, we focus on that a lot. And I think it's good from a business perspective, but we have to continue strategically, personally to remember that's not the end game. The money is just the tool. And when you get to the place where the tool is, you, you can't use a hammer when your house is built. Like, don't, you know, don't go breaking all your walls down. Don't go like just destroying stuff just to rebuild it. Sit and relax and enjoy your house. Like you've built it, right? Put the hammer away, put the money away and just enjoy the time that, that, that the hammer got you to, right? Enjoy that. And I think that's something that that's, again, it's not a business tip. So don't put this under, you know, Nate's business tips, you know, <laughs> five of Nate's business tips, but it's, I think it's, I think the, I don't know, maybe I'm getting too old. Maybe this is like, I'm reflecting back on life. I'm like, these, you know, these are the things that I think about now. So, but I think it's, I think it's imperative for not getting to burnout. I mean, I'd like to build more companies because I like it, not because I want a bazillion dollars, but because I enjoy the process. So I want to continue to enjoy that process and not be burnt out. So I think that other, again, I think that if I think that way, I think probably other people probably do too. So I think it's actually like a refreshing approach because like these days, there's a lot of gurus out there trying to sell you on, Hey, you know, you make your first million and then you exit and then you make all your money. But we've talked to a lot of founders kind of like yourself and they're, they resonate exactly what you're saying. Right. And I mean, two different points here. We got not to name drop Will Schroeder from startups.com to come on. And he said like $250,000 is life-changing money. And yeah. he said, you know, everybody always thinks it was multi-million dollar exits, but really what can you not pay off essentially with $250,000? And we've done a survey. We've checked with people. This is the amount, like you don't really need like an extreme amount. Mm -hmm. And you know, the second point is, you know, when someone is building business and they really love what they're doing, another guest we had on our show, Arvid Call, he built something up to about 55,000 MRR and he got the business sold. It's like, great, I have all this life-changing money and I'm like happy. Now I'm going to play World of Warcraft and, you know, do my thing. He said, you know, that wasn't really satisfying. And at the end of the day, I really just love building businesses and like talking about business and you know it's nice to have that and have an exit but it was almost like something was missing when he went back to world of warcraft and just had that money he didn't can do anything else so it really resonates exactly what you're saying so don't feel like you're the only one there's definitely lots of other people who feel the same way you're feeling and i just think that's a great message to like pass along yeah i don't think it's necessarily a unique idea i think that just you know, people say it in different ways and sometimes it resonates with different people in different times. And I fully agree. Arvid's great. And I think his, that story is like, I told the, <laughs> my wife and I, we took a trip to France and it, the idea was we were going to go live just in France. We were hope, hoping to live there for a year. We ended up coming back after three months, but, but that's not the point. The point was that like, when we came back, one of my business partners 
saw that and he goes, Hey, if you can do that, I, I can, I'm going to go do that too. And so, but he said him and his wife, he, they went to Thailand and they lived there for a year on very little. And he was like, I had it. I had the American dream of doing nothing. He's like, you know what? I got, I went crazy after like, like two months. And I was like, you lasted two, two months. I couldn't even go like two weeks, but it's not because of the workaholic thing. But I think that we play out this idea in our mind that like having all the money in the world and not doing anything is the American dream. And it's not what's, what is the American dream? I believe now is the ability to say, I don't want to do anything. If today I don't want to work, I don't work. It's not that I'm not going to ever work again. Like I would go nuts if I didn't actually do the work, but I want the ability to say, I want the option. I, and I have these like principles on my GitHub account that I wrote out that is like, one of them has to do with like, optionality. And I think that optionality and flexibility in, at least in the Western world, as it is today, is probably the number one thing that you should be positioning for and trying to make sure that you have. And the best way to do that is to have that money, right? Or time, but, and, and so then you get to spend it where you want to spend it and do what you want to do, right? It's not about not doing anything. Otherwise we're just vegetables. And that's not actually interesting for most, at least not for most bootstrappers, not for most business people. That's not interesting at all. In fact, that's terrible. That's like a death. Like, I don't, my wife is like, we're never going to retire. Are we? I'm like, no, we're not. It's, just, it's not going to happen. So get used to it. So, so we will always be building something, but it's just because like, we've done it. We, I sat on the beach in the Mediterranean for two months and did nothing. I was forced to, but I had to, but I sat there and I did nothing. And it was like, it was fantastic and absolutely terrible at the same exact time. I'm like, I don't like that feeling. I want to contribute. I want to like make something valuable. I want to see people's eyes light up when we teach something new. And like that, that gets me up in the morning. Like, but having the option to be like, look, I'm burnt out. I'm going to go like surf with my kids or something like that. That's it. Right. Like having the ability to choose when you spend time with who you spend it and doing what you want. That is the American dream. Right. I hear you. We're running close to overtime. So we're going to try and wrap this up with a few questions. So one of the last things we want to ask you about business was your uh, CTO over at Founders First Capital Partners. So just tell us about that. Yeah. So this is actually great. Founders First is a company founded by an African-American woman who has done this before multiple times in terms of like building businesses. And what this is a two-part business. One is a programs, nonprofit business. And so what we do is we take companies that are diverse led companies that are, that have a revenue of $50,000 or more. And we help basically accelerate them. There's, it's not an accelerator where we take equity or debt or anything. It's just a program of education. And we kind of walk them through these paths. So we have kind of three different, three or four different programs, depending on the size of the company. And then they get all these advisorship and all these like teaching and everything like that. And we just basically like help them walk through scaling their business, trying to figure out how they take their business, usually a service business from something that's small to something that is a great, you know, employer or, and making money and doing all the things that basically like helps diverse led founders kind of grow their businesses. That's half the business. The other half is a for-profit and it is revenue-based financing. So it's a debt instrument, but the way that it works is like, if we invest in your company, then you would pay back based on the revenues that you make. So if you make no revenue that month, then you, there's like a very small, very, very nominal fee that you still have to pay, but, it, but otherwise it's based on kind of your cash receipts. So if, as you're making revenue, you pay a portion of that back to pay off the debt. And the idea is that we're helping to accelerate you with capital that you otherwise likely 
don't have access to or aren't prepared for. So sometimes that means that your books aren't quite in order, or sometimes it means that uh, for whatever reason, you haven't gone to the Small Business Association or something like that um, to get it. And so we help you kind of, again, from both the program education side, but also from the capital side, trying to put those, uh, give those people access to funds they might not otherwise have, and funds and education. And so we have a great group of advisors that are part of it. And, and the funding has just started after we closed our Series A this year. So... Wow. Congratulations. That sounds like an Thanks. awesome business model and a great way for people to get some funds to work on their businesses. Yeah. And the other thing too that we do is uh, we actually provide grants. So it's an area regional specific, but I would suggest anybody who's listening that's interested in something like this, feel free to get in contact, but also we do grants in areas and we just finished the SoCal region. And I think right now we're working on the New Jersey region um, that's closing, I think the end of this week. And we provide, I can't remember the dollar figure, but it's somewhere between ten dollars and $30,000 to founders who are building building their companies. And so the idea is, you know, again, making sure that we we're giving and supporting founders who are diverse led and really trying to make an impact and they might not otherwise have access to capital or, or programs. That's great. Thanks. Nick, yeah. you got anything you want to add? No, I mean, I think that's awesome. It's really interesting when you look at like the history of like funding in these types of programs where it was like a little predatory before where it's like VC set the, uh, the terms like across the board. So you, you see people running away with equity there. And it seems like recently a lot of that has gone away, but a lot of the part that hasn't gone away is like the diversity part where the rates of acceptance and funding based off ethnicity is so insane. And it's, you know, kind of just coming to light and you see a lot of it like starting to change, but it's one of those things where you look at the numbers and you're like, whoa, wait a second. What? really yeah. like what is going on here so yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's crazy it's just awesome like you said the increasing the surface area i love that it's just like increasing the surface area of innovation yeah i think that's i think that's a, a huge key so no i appreciate you guys's work it's a fun business to be a part of for sure and it's great to be able to I think a lot of times we're always looking for impact right and again kind of going back to like the more like personal strategic level like it's nice to be a part of a company that that is focused on something that you believe in and is actually making a difference in people's lives. And I think I've always been a part of like microfinance institutions where you're making a, a big difference in a lot of people's lives in small ways. But this is this is kind of that, but on a larger scale. And it's people who are already in our communities, kind of on another level. But it's like these folks are really trying hard to like make a good business and and do something good for the world. And like we're able to support them, which is really fun. So. I can really see uh, an alignment between you and Chris, like you have the same personality in terms of like what you're looking for and how you want to help other people. So that's terrific. Like it's nice. And again, breath of fresh air to like kind of think of those things and help those founders who need the help. Yeah. Well, you know, you're doing the same thing that Nicholas did by putting me in that category. Chris is an amazing guy. And so, you know, imposter syndrome. So he's happy to just be in the same room. So. Yeah, don't worry. We feel that all the way, all the time when we're hosting a show and we've got guests on. <laughs> awesome. So we're just gonna. The one thing we love to ask our guests before they go is we ask them, "Do you have any advice for fellow founders and builders? And what do you think they should be uh, when they're starting up something or in their middle of something?" I know you had that great advice with uh, in terms of money and not always thinking about the money first. But what's some good advice that you can give to them? 
And you're going deep into that. Well, I feel like I already like did a bunch. Um, so like, like now I have to like go off script here. So I think, let's see, man, one piece of advice, you know, I think that a lot of people talk about like the whole thing about doing what you love, which is an interesting, it's an interesting piece of the conversation. I think the thing is, if what you love is not making money, then do something else. And, but keep that as a hobby and not all hobbies need to turn into businesses. I think that's a, a tough place to be. I've done that before in the past. I turned hobbies into businesses and they turned into just drudgery. And unfortunately it ruined the hobby for me. So I guess my only advice there is not so much business advice, but more just kind of life advice. Like keep a hobby. Don't be like me, like keep a hobby and, and enjoy that off time for a little bit. I think you'll be a better entrepreneur. You'll be a better business person by doing so. It seems counterintuitive, but I think spending time away and spending time in a calm, relaxed environment where you can think and do something that you love um, will re-energize you and you'll be a better business person because of it. And I think you'll find that things like these synapses will cross. Like you'll have these, you know, in the shower moments where you're like, oh, brilliant idea. And it's so hard to have those moments when you're in the business all day. I think that's I might be just talking to myself more because I'm, I feel like I'm doing that a lot. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to my own. I'm going to listen to this podcast later so I can tell myself that. So I don't know if that helps anybody else, but there you go. I'm helping myself later. So (laughs) no, that's a fair assessment. Cause like, yeah, it's true. People always say, Hey, like follow your passion, what you love. That's only, I would say it doesn't always work. Like you said, it it doesn't always work. You got to follow the trends. You got to understand how the market is. And if there's opportunity, I think that's the biggest thing. If there's opportunity and it is something that you do love and it can work, then yeah, you should try it. But if there's no trends there, there's no opportunity. No, you shouldn't do that because that's too risky is putting your heart for like the actual metrics and the analytics, which say don't do it. So I think that is actually great advice. And there's also Uh, a piece of that too. If you do see that trend, like why not join somebody who is interested in all that other stuff, but you can do that one slice that maybe they're not good at, right? But mm-hmm. it's the slice that you actually do like. Like, do that then. Like, I had a, I had somebody that worked for me before, and he was, uh, and he was like, "Look, dude, I never want to run my own business." And I'm like, "Great, you're going to be the best employee ever. You're never going to want to take my my job from me. You're not going to go build a competing business. It's going to be great." But he was very good at doing certain things, and it's like, good. You're doing what you love, and I'm doing what I love, and we're doing it together, then fantastic. Right. So that's great. And it's, and it was on trend and that, that was, you know, I think you have to join all these things together. I don't think it's as binary as like, do what you love or don't, or that's a terrible idea. It's, you got to mix and match all these things together to find the right chemistry. So yeah, for sure. Right. So where can people find you or your business, Nate? So our business is roomsteals.com. Check it out. We have uh, the Chrome extension. We have a staycations alerting email alert system. You can just jump in there and browse around and see if uh, what we've got seems to beat whatever prices you're looking at. You can, I mean, I'll say nateritter.com, but my blog is like super old right now. So my bucket list is there. If you care about where we're heading at some point in the future when the pandemic is no longer a thing, that's going to be it. And then mostly I just, I love to talk to people on Twitter. I love to get added to lists that I didn't know existed that really feed my ego on Twitter. So, so Nate Ritter at, at Nate Ritter on Twitter is my handle there. So those are the places where I kind of like hang out. Perfect. We'll link that in the description when we drop the episode. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. That was a really fun, great way to start off our morning. I really enjoyed having you for all those super fans and early adopters listening to Buy and Build podcast. We love you. Thank you again for joining us. And we'll see you in the next one.